0: I'm sitting here with my friend Ramez Naam, who is the author of four fantastic books. Uh, Two non-fiction ones, uh, such as The Infinite Resource and More Than Human. And the ones that totally got me hooked up on his uh, soon-to-be trilogy, starting with Nexus, going to Crooks, and ending in... Apex. Apex. Fantastic. So... Let me begin our conversation by saying thank you very much for being with us today, Ramez. Thanks, Nicola. It's great to be here. Fantastic. And so finally, after two previous interviews, I get to talk to you in person. How, how can we do that any better?
1: It's awesome. Thanks for coming to Seattle. It's
0: fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. So let's jump right in by asking you this. Mez, if you were to describe yourself in a couple of words, how would you do that best?
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh... I'm a computer scientist uh, I'm also a writer. I write science fiction and nonfiction all of it about the future and since it's all about the future
0: and since it's both fiction and nonfiction, which one do you think
1: would be the the one that's more impactful the fiction or the nonfiction? They both have impact in different ways. Uh, the nonfiction is about serious policy issues with more than human. I was arguing that. We should embrace the idea that we should let people modify their own genes and bodies and brains. And with the Infinite Resource, I was arguing for a policy around uh, energy and climate and so on. Uh, but with fiction, it is the only time that you get somebody calling you and saying, you kept me up till 3 a.m. reading your book. And that's a different kind of emotional impact that is also very, very satisfying.
0: Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's exactly what happened with me. I started reading your book, Nexus. Uh, probably about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. And uh, I promised my wife that uh, by midnight I'll be in bed. Uh, and then next morning she woke up to find me finishing your book. And both of us got in a lot of trouble in a way. So, so you did succeed very much in that sense. Excellent. But, but let me ask you, are you looking for any deeper impact rather than just keeping my attention for 12 hours or
1: so? What's the deeper impact that you're going after with the fiction book? I am. Nexus and Crux are near-future sci-fi with a, a nano drug that links brains. Um, and so they're arguing it's, it's a world where this sort of technology has been banned. And so it's sort of an X-Men-like story in a certain sense, arguing that we ought to uh, not fear and stigmatize people who are different from us. But they're also a critique of the U.S. war on drugs. They're also a critique of... Uh, The U.S. War on Terror, and also, though I started writing them before the NSA revelations came out, they're really a critique of the surveillance state. Uh, Again, ironically, I didn't know all the things we know now before I wrote either book. So I am hoping, uh, in sort of a corey doctoral sort of way, to influence people's opinions on those issues of civil liberties through the book. And I I think I'm having some impact with that. Mm -hmm.
0: So, yeah, exactly on that topic. Let me ask you then, what is science fiction? Because when I interviewed Cory Doctorow, Cory Doctorow sa- said and what is science fiction all about? And Cory said science fiction is about the present. It's ter- in his view, science fiction is terrible at predicting the future, but it's very much a reflection of the present. And in a way, it's a thought experiment which allows you to sample a particular ele- element of the present and put it in a Petri dish and grow it to its ultimate potential and investigate the impacts.
1: Right. Well, I think science fiction is is very, very big and very encompassing. There's a lot of science fiction is basically just action-adventure stories in spaceships with lasers. And it's, it's not very different than military stories or any other action film that you might watch, just having these set in space. Mm-hmm. Um, other science fiction does really try to predict the future, and you can see Arthur C. Clarke you know, predicting and maybe even inspiring the idea mm-hmm. of communication satellites, or Jules Verne uh, potentially really uh, inspiring the idea of true uh, underwater submarines. So there is some real futurism happening in science fiction, or even... To a certain extent, Asimov in the Foundation series was trying to posit an economics that is orders of magnitude more sophisticated than economics that exists today. Uh, but I'm with Corey, actually, that any science fiction, any literature written reflects the present day, and I hope that, that any book that I write changes how people look at both the future and the present. And I can't write fiction without writing about the issues that I care about deeply. Um, And there are issues that I care about both in terms of technologies that I think are cool, future issues that I think are important, and present issues that I think are very important and that we ought to take action on. Mm -hmm. Now, we covered a little bit about the fiction part. Let's talk a little bit about
0: the science part, right? Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that um, science fiction inspires science, as you gave the example of Star Trek, or is it even more fair to say say that science fiction takes the ideas of science already existing and sort of puts them into the public sphere? In other words,
1: which is first, the chicken or the egg? I think there's some of both. I I don't think you can say where one starts and the other ends. Um, Let's talk, uh, you mentioned Star Trek. Um, Star Trek, the science in Star Trek is horrible. It's just completely off, okay? Nevertheless, even with dilithium crystals and faster-than-light tra- travel and humans 500 years from now going faster than light is completely backwards from what's really likely to happen. Popularizing popularizing uh, real science and sometimes in pushing scientists um, in their own fields or in fields of inquiry, um, in, in my own books, I try to be as scientifically rigorous as possible. The biotechnology, the biology, the physics, the chemistry, and especially the neuroscience, which is what I focus on most, are as accurate as I can make them. But they're also extrapolating in the future. So I'm communicating neuroscience to a certain extent to the reader. Uh, but I hope also that neuroscientists are reading my books, and I know some are, um, and are saying, whoa, that's, that's pretty cool, maybe we could head in this direction. And are maybe getting a little bit excited about their own field. Uh, because often scientists are are so focused on the difficulty of uh, getting the next experiment six months down the road or a year down the road to work that they uh, it can kind of suck the enthusiasm out of the ten-year, twenty-year roadmap. I've had scientists come up to me and say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had I recently had a, a really prestigious neuroscientist uh, come up to me and say, "Could you come and talk at in my institute?" Uh, full of neuroscientists, about the 20-year roadmap of neuroscience. He knows, he knows much more about neuroscience than I do. So do all the people I would be speaking to. Uh, but for him, what's interesting is I know passably a little bit about neuroscience and can channel some excitement about a time horizon that his working scientists don't have the luxury of thinking about because they have to get this next experiment and this next paper done. So I think there's a a cycle of things feeding off of each other between real science, public perception, and uh, future speculation. Mm -hmm. So the theme, really, let's start with the the story a little bit. Nexus, the first book, uh, is also the name of a technology in the book. It's it's sold as a street drug. Uh, You've got a vial of a silvery fluid that you drink, and it's really a nanotechnology that gets in your brain and attaches to the neurons of your brain, and if you and I both took some, these nanobots would connect us sort of telepathically. They would, via Wi-Fi, essentially, connect our brains together.
0: Brain-to-brain communication.
1: That's right. And this technology in the year 2040 is highly illegal because similar technologies have been used in terrorist attacks, have been used to take over people's minds, have been used in bad ways. So a number of technologies, uh, research into AI, biotech, nanotech, are highly curtailed. So the storyline is basically my protagonists are young scientists who uh, get caught making improvements to this tech because they're idealistic. And it's really a story about conflict between different powers, some of whom are trying to suppress this sort of technology, mostly governments. Others are trying to uh, embrace and extend this sort of technology, mostly us individuals, um, and the challenges that uh ensue, they're action thrillers. they're sort of they've been compared to the the born identity sort of books or to Tom Clancy in some ways. Um, there's a lot of geopolitics. They hop from the u s to Thailand, you know Bangkok to China. There's actually big overtones of buddhism and and group mind in there. There's enhanced soldiers uh, and clone armies and various things. But the real big issue is about power and control, and who gets the control over this sort of thing, who gets to decide if it should happen or not, and uh, who, who doesn't. Um, and again, there's a big sort of analogy to and critique of the U.S. war on drugs, the U.S. war on terror, and the U.S. surveillance state. Mm-hmm. So Nexus and Crux are out, and Apex will be the final one, come out in 2014.
0: Fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to it because, as you know, I'm already hooked on the the first two and and I'm looking forward to the third one. What can you tell us, maybe a little glimpse into the third one?
1: Um, Apex, so Nexus was a book that is really self-contained. It has a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, Then when we got picked up, we knew that there would be three books. Crux is sort of the Empire Strikes Back of the series. It's the dark book a lot of very bad things happen. Our heroes are in very, very dark places. Um, and Apex is the conclusion. Um, and it's a more political book, even, than the other two, which is potentially saying a lot. Um, and it, it does lead to conclusions, and the conclusions change the world uh, more than anything else. Uh, you get into the minds and into the points of view of actors that have been mostly uh, a little bit more offstage. stage. Mm-hmm um i think i'll leave it at that (laughs) okay let's let's leave the mystery i will say that my facebook status yesterday was i killed a man it took longer than i expected (laughs) oh my god i don't even want to ask who that was spoiler than one of my novels somebody dies, so (laughs) i i don't want even to
0: ask i hope it's not the person i'm thinking of but uh let me ask you this uh, the ideas, I know you don't like the word transhumanism per se. Yeah. That's why your, your uh, previous uh, nonfiction book mm-hmm. is called More Than Human yeah. rather than Transhuman. But is it fair to say that it's the same ideas that you had explored in nonfictional format that you moved into the fictional format yes. afterwards? And why? So, why? Why do you do
1: that change? Yeah, so More Than Human really talks about the same ethical issues, the same technologies, genetic engineering, brain-computer interfaces. Human um, enhancement. Human enhancement, as I talk about extensively in Nexus. Uh, And it talks about the same ethical issues. Who can afford it? Who gets control? What should be legal and illegal? What happens if you make it illegal? Do black markets spring up? Does that make it less safe? Does that make it more expensive? Uh, should you actually throw people in jail for trying to enhance themselves with their kids? Um, so they're actually very, very closely related. It's just one of them has more explosions, I would say. Um, and why did I do it? Well, fiction is really, really fun. I grew up reading sci-fi. I grew up reading Greg Baer, whose, whose office we're in right now. And so uh, it's actually way more engaging to read the same story in fiction than to read a non-fiction book about the same topic, it turns out, Mm -hmm. at least for that topic.
0: Do you think that this kind of tool allows you to reach audience or people that you otherwise would not reach? Because my impression was that while, you know, more than Human is a fantastic book in its own right, Nexus went out of print very quickly, I think, if I remember. So it was a very quick bestseller. So my impression is that it allows you to reach people that you otherwise wouldn't reach. And also the scaling is
1: much bigger, perhaps. Much more popular audience. Nexus is definitely reaching many, many more people than more than human ever did. I mean, you can just see it's got more than 300 reviews on Amazon. It's got blurbs and reviews from people I love. Corey Doctorow and Charlie Straw. He's a
0: big fan of the trilogy, yes. Cory.
1: Yeah. I'm a big fan of Cory's too. So It's it's great when the people who you love uh, like your work. Um, and it's been optioned by as a movie by Paramount and Darren Aronofsky. So if that gets made, even better. And I trust that someone like Aronofsky would include some of those themes, some of the, the trippy psychedelic elements of mind-to-mind communication and some of the questions of of ethics and uh, politics that go into it too, I think he would do well. So fingers crossed that happens. And yeah, it's been tremendously more effective at getting the same ideas out. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little more about the movie. I, that's
0: absolutely fascinating,
1: and I'm very happy to hear about it. Well, they say, you know, nothing in Hollywood happens until it does. <laughs> so uh, film options are very, very exciting. Uh, a small flash of them actually lead to films. But um, Aronofsky, uh, as a producer and uh, two writers who have written his previous films, Ari Handel and Mark Heyman, are on board writing the script, uh, and the studio is Paramount, and one of the other producers is Mary Parent, who produced the film uh, Pacific Rim. So, fingers crossed, it's in their hands. These things tend to move very, very slowly, um, but who knows? There might be a movie someday.
0: But just to be clear, are we talking about Nexus, or are we talking about Crooks, or the trilogy in general? Nexus. Nexus, specifically. Where does the issue of the technological singularity fit in your personal view?
1: Right. The singularity is a, is a very, very big concept. Um, let me preface what I'm about to say with saying that I'm a huge optimist. I love technology. I think technology has been a incredible positive force in human affairs. And I think we're seeing an incredible... Um, acceleration in the pace of technology uh, over the last century, century and a half, and maybe over the last few decades. Um, That said, the the word singularity, what does that come from? It comes from divide by zero. It means that on a graph, you know, if a number is moving along like this, when it goes up and there's a vertical asymptote, where suddenly it goes up like this, and it doesn't just go very high, but literally it cannot go past this point without going up to infinity, uh, or beyond, actually, divide by zero, uh, that's a singularity. We use a singularity to describe a black hole, not because we even think that a black hole is a mathematical singularity, but it's because our current formulae break down there. So I think the word singularity implies a whole lot that isn't necessarily there. So more specifically, Werner vinges' uh, view of the singularity was... An intelligence explosion. This idea that an intelligence could arise that was smarter than humans. Let's say an n plus 1 intelligence. And let's say it was an AI. And this n plus 1 AI could then go and design an n plus 2 AI. And that n plus 2 AI could then go and design an n plus 3 AI. And then...
0: Infinite self improvement. Yes.
1: And potentially each of those cycles would be shorter than the last, which means that you would have infinite self improvement and on shorter and shorter cycle times. Great. Like that sounds very appealing. The
0: last invention we ever need to
1: make. Yes. The empirical support for that idea is lacking. It's severely lacking. Okay. We already have smarter than human AIs, we have entities with much, much brain power than AIs that are working on improving themselves. I'll give you an example of one. I know of one uh, in Portland, Oregon, where Will came from, or outside of Portland, Oregon. It's called the Intel Corporation. It employs something like 100,000 human brains unknown numbers, probably millions of of microprocessors. It devotes billions of dollars in capital to building factories for building more microprocessors. It is almost as close as you can get to Vinji's idea of an entity that is trying to design the next version of itself to be smarter and smarter. And a whole lot of the design of microprocessors now is actually done in software running on Intel chips. And yet, it's not reaching... Takeoff it's velocity. not exponential
0: in any way. It's not
1: reaching takeoff velocity. I mean, and they actually... We're talking
0: single digit percentage at best.
1: Yes. Um, the I don't have any problem with the concept of greater than human level AI. I don't have any problem with the concept of uploading a human brain either. Um, but I think that an AI that is, uh, let's say, twice as smart as a human is not going to necessarily be able to suddenly create an AI that is three times as smart as a human. Because to have built that AI that is twice as smart as a human, it's not going to have been one human that built it. It's going to have most likely been a the some work of thousands of humans, if not tens of thousands of humans, across, you know, probably Google and hundreds of other companies and lots of academics and all the people who have been working on chip improvements over decades. All of their work combined would be the thing that led to that. So that AI that is twice as smart as a human being, when we get there, I'll get to that in a second, is not going to immediately turn around and be like, wham, I've got this new thing. It might get a job at Google or a job at Intel as a really great coder, working on or a really great chip designer that's you know highly employable as part of the team working on designing uh a... along
0: everybody else yes
1: so that's what the more realistic um, model looks like or i'll argue this in a different mathematical way computing power goes up exponentially but the difficulty of many problems also goes up exponentially all right. We see this in uh, modeling of physical systems, for instance. If you want to model things at the quantum level, you have to solve the Schrodinger equation. Right, And we actually can't do that for systems more complex than helium yet. And that scales actually worse than exponentially. Right? Um, if you want to use some good approximations of quantum functions to model things at the levels of actual electrons and so on, they scale at maybe n to the seventh. So that's still actually much better than exponentially, but if you get a um, 10 million times speed up of computers, which today takes about 35 years, you double the size of system you can model. That's not nearly as impressive as a ten million times speed up, or uh, computers are ten thousand times faster than they were in twenty years ago in nineteen ninety three I don't write books, you know ten thousand times faster than I did then. Word doesn't seem to run ten thousand times faster than it did in nineteen ninety three like the in the real world, these things top out in various ways they don't top out, but they have diminishing marginal The translation returns. between the hardware gains and real-world gains is
0: is very greatly diminished okay. perhaps.
1: So I think those are those are two separate points that I made. One is that many of the problems themselves show either diminishing returns or the problems themselves are not linear in difficulty, they're super linear. Mm-hmm. And two is that the actual design of next generation minds is a problem that is much harder than one mind's worth of work. It's often thousands or tens of thousands worth of minds worth of work. Three is, let's talk about how hard it is to get to that next generation AI. There's basically two approaches people talk about. One is humans coming up with a design for the AI. The other is uploading human minds. In the first one, we still to this day have no clue, I will say. AI has been uh, 20 years away for 60 years. I spent six or seven years at Microsoft basically working at NII. I worked on large-scale neural networks, and they're awesome. They're fantastic. And they are nowhere near... They can do things very unlike human minds. If you want to search a billion documents very, very rapidly for great keyword matches, they are amazing and they can do things that a human mind can't. But they can't still do things that a human mind can. Um, And we don't really know what we're missing. So there's a big knowledge gap there. Mm -hmm. I would say. And uh, the people who are most optimistic about the future of AI tend to not be active researchers in AI. And the researchers in AI mostly say it's not computing power we're, we're missing, it's theoretical breakthroughs. Okay, so that's, that's my personal opinion on that. I have no philosophical objection. There is nothing impossible at AI whatsoever. We will get there someday, but we don't really know when.
0: That basically, you're a mirror image of, of uh, both uh, Professor Marty, Marvin Minsky and uh, Dr. Chomsky, whom both I interviewed recently. and It was very funny for me to watch them come up to the exact same conclusion from very different points yeah. of view. Basically, both of them saying outright that there hasn't been any substantial notable progress whatsoever since at least the 1970s and maybe even from earlier time.
1: I I wouldn't go as far as that. I think there has been a tremendous amount of progress, but we still don't know how far away we are from the end goal. But
0: uh, Dr. (laughs) Minsky shocked me by his claim, and his claim was that it's very narrow AI progress that we're talking about. All the progress is done, say, in places like Google, autonomous self-driving cars, Watson, which are very tight, narrow applications of AI. So it's nothing like
1: general AI. And... All of the economic incentive is around narrow AI. Precisely. There's no funding no. for general AI
0: because it's not commercial. It's not. It doesn't have market benefits in, in right. the near future.
1: Yeah, there's, there's no market benefit, almost no market benefit you can identify for a truly self-aware system. And there's huge ethical quandaries. If you want to build a system that is self-aware and has intentions and has feelings and so on, what do you do with your beta version that is horribly flawed in some way and suffers depression? Do you just turn it off? Isn't that a murder? Oh, my God. Do you have to start going to your independent review board, your IRB, for each iteration? I mean, how many versions of software do you think that we go through before we ship a new version? Is every version fix uh, a death? I don't really know. So there's, there's a lot of reasons to just keep doing better and better practical, weak AI. And that's where the, the energy will be for the foreseeable future.
0: Let me let me roll the tape a little bit back and, and go back again to your definition and see if I can bring a, a little distinction there and if you agree with me. As far as I remember, it was I.J. Good who said that it's intelligent explosion. And, okay. and Werner Vingy was the guy who was stressing more the event horizon. Mm-hmm. And that was specifically our ability to model and forecast the future. Right. So what do you think about that with respect to the singularity, that kind of radical border beyond which we are unable to look forward, we are unable to model anything,
1: right. we are unable to say anything whatsoever, which is why he co- coined it the singularity. I think uh, if it's an issue of the event horizon, then the singularity was really sometime around about 100,000 years ago because there was a, a moment in time when our species developed complex symbolic thought. And the, uh, the forerunners of our species, though they had fire, they had simple stone tools, did not have the cognitive abilities or the communication abilities to be able to talk about or model what the future was. After that, our species did have the ability to spin these remarkable tales of what the future was like, to at least spin hypotheticals. And they might have been incredibly wrong, but they could imagine, you know, gods on their mountaintops and um, layers of turtles or whatever, creating the universe and so on. Um, And there's been a variety of, of... levels of gains in our ability to abstract the universe since then. Uh, The advent of mathematics, uh, Aristotle, uh, Newton, Einstein, all of those have, to a certain extent, a game theory. Economics, all of those, to a certain extent, have actually given us more ability to understand what the future will be like. Now, we don't understand a whole lot about the future. There's a whole lot that we just don't know. I can't tell you uh, what the name of the country on Earth will be in the future. I can't tell you if humanity will still exist in 100 years. I can't tell you if we will all go up in a nuclear holocaust or if a virus that we design will kill us all off um, or a whole variety of things. I can't tell you a whole lot of things about this. But we have some fundamental understanding, more than ever, about what the laws of physics appear to be, what they probably are, within certain constraints, about uh, game theory and economics. Our understanding of economics is very, very poor, but it's better than ever. And that tells us some things, uh, in combination with evolution, about how things compete and how things evolve and how that works, and the likely patterns of behavior of uh, different life forms and different memes. Um, And so I'd say, to a certain extent, we have pushed back the event horizon over this time. And the singularity is further away, if you want to define it as an event horizon, than it ever has been, actually. But grabbing your evolution thought, let me
0: ask you about sort of emergent artificial intelligence, which people have often pointed out as a third alternative of getting to AI right. um, I've interviewed two people on my show previously uh, namely Robert J Sawyer who wrote a, a very good uh, trilogy called WWW uh, wake watch and wonder and also George Dyson the son of Freeman Dyson who wrote uh, Darwin among the machines and in in both of their cases they're arguing about the potentiality one is a nonfiction the other is a fiction they're Putting forward the potentiality of an artificial intelligence emerging, say, on the World Wide Web, on the Internet.
1: So it is fully possible to use evolutionary methods, Darwinian methods, to uh, evolve better and better computer code. And we know that our minds and our consciousness, I actually don't really love that term, but our minds, our ability to think, um, are a result of Darwinian processes. So there's every reason to believe that using Darwinian methods, we could evolve creatures in software that are intelligent. It would take a long, long time. I mean, uh, uh, if you imagine that in the divergence of humans from uh, the earliest mammals was 100 million years, something along those lines, maybe 60 million years, That's a lot of generations. That's millions of generations that have passed in that time. And each of those generations was millions of organisms, and each of those organisms would take more processing power to simulate than the largest supercomputers on Earth possess today, by quite a lot, by orders of magnitude. So you're talking about a combined processing load that is now quadrillions or quintillions of times more than all the computing power on earth to do those Darwinian processes to get to that kind of intelligence. But that, it is a way, if you had huge amounts of computing power, to bypass the, the we-don't-know-how-to-do-it sort of problem. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it's probably inordinately expensive. And it also runs into other ethical issues, Because along the way, you're producing creatures that are intelligent. And in this Darwinian system, you're having to kill off the ones that you think are less intelligent. What are you doing You're giving IQ tests to AIs, and the ones that score an 86, you axe, and the ones that score an 87 get to breed and produce better ones? Well, at what point are you now acting in an immoral way? And in fact, uh, Greg Egan has dealt with this a little bit in fiction. But I think you're also getting a slightly different uh, point, which is that it's not just Darwinian, but that there's some sort of just uh, holistic emergent event where, by just sort of sufficient complexity, the internet as a whole becomes conscious. And I think that is extremely unrealistic, sort of woo-woo mystical thinking. And I, I will first say, I used to think that might happen. So I'm criticizing myself and saying this, but the reason I think that is, why do we have intelligence? Why does this particular structure of neurons have intelligence? It's because this structure isn't random. It's not a random alignment of neurons. We take as many neurons as we have, about 100 billion, 100 trillion synapses, you know, put them together in a random alignment, will it have uh, intelligence like we have? No. No way, no day. It will be something that has electrical potentials and it maybe it has some sort of vague sensations or something. I don't know. It won't talk. It won't think. It won't do math. It won't model. Won't run a body. It'll be vegetative. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's what it would be like. Um, the reason we have intelligence is because billions of creatures before us went through this fitness test, where if they were unable to model the world around them successfully enough to avoid that bear, they they died. And the ones that were good at knowing where the bear was going to go or communicating to their friend, you go around the back, I'll go around the front, those lived long enough to breed. Or the ones that were cunning enough to trick their enemies into killing each other and thus monopolize the local area, you know, prospered. prospered. And so it was a continual intelligence test, a continual a test of the ability of organisms to model and manipulate the environment around them. And the internet as a whole, or the planet as a whole, or the universe as a whole, or any of these holistic uh, systems that people think might be conscious haven't gone through tests like that. They're not the end product of a Darwinian process of billions of cycles where all the rest have been weaned out of testing like that. So I see no reason to think that that's just going to happen.
0: So, so let me go back to the second scenario then about mind uploading and connecting that to the synapses and, and the, the 100 billion uh, um, neurons that we each have in our body. How is that for a high potentiality for bringing forth the, the technological singularity? Mind well, uploading, basically.
1: I don't, I don't know about that. I'd call that a singularity, but I think that's the most likely uh, scenario that I see right now for creating a human-level or greater intelligence in a software-hardware substrate. Um, that's one. The basic idea is, can we scan the exact wiring of the human brain, simulate it in software, and run it on a very large uh, computing cluster? And you've seen now that two teams, the Blue Brain Project at IBM and a Henry Markham's project, funded now by the EU, have both made claims about Ah, uh, very large-scale successes simulating a uh, large part of a mouse cortex at one fortieth the speed, simulating a tenth of a cat cortex. You know, again, like one eightieth speed something like that. Just, just for the
0: audience, those are the projects for, of uh, Damitra Motka
1: mm-hmm.
0: and Dr. Henry Makram in the EU. That's right. That recently won a billion-dollar funding for the next ten years for the That's Human right. Brain Project. That's right.
1: So there are now there are very serious projects. You know, one funded by IBM, one funded by the EU, both working in parallel and competing on being able to simulate a human brain in uh, hardware and software. And again, I will say philosophically, metaphysically, neuroscientifically, there is no problem in my mind with that working. If you had a sufficiently detailed and accurate simulation of a human mind, of a human brain running in software, on a fast computer, you would have a thinking, feeling, operating
0: intelligence. Let me stop you right there for a second, because paradoxically, this is what my inclination originally was. And yet, Dr. Marvin Minsky, in his view, said that's the biggest waste of time and resources. And in his view, it's not only going completely in the wrong direction, but it may actually lead to what he called a nuclear AI winter, because... His point is that unless you have an overarching theory of mind, you have no idea where you're going with all that research. And you cannot actually, uh, therefore, produce any uh, reasonable progress or idea how to to make artificial intelligence in, in, in any way whatsoever.
1: Well, I think the structure of such a mind is going to be very different than anything that we would build from the, the normal AI path. But it, it, does, it would have a very big advantage over anything that we do currently in neuroscience, which is the big limit in neuroscience is actually being able to monitor and interact with enough neurons. And a mind running in software, you could, by definition, monitor what's happening with every neuron, and you could start experimenting with what happens if you intervene in this area and so on. The challenge with that, and so Ray Kurzweil, for instance, would say that by 2045, We will have enough computing power to be able to simulate a human brain in software. Um, And so I write about this a little bit at the end of Crux, because I deal with a potential AI upload, or a potential upload, let's say, um, in that book. And I would say there's a couple challenges. One is, we have no non-invasive scanning technology that can get to the right level of detail. So the only way we know of to get your brain, or any human brain, scanned at that level of detail right now is to... Cut it with a diamond knife. I mean, actually... You put the it, micron level. Yeah, we plasticize your brain or plastinate your brain. Uh, we chop it up into like very small cubes, like less than a centimeter on a side. And we use a diamond knife to slice it, you know, uh, maybe five nanometer thick slices. And then we use a scanning electron microscope to scan uh, very, very tight. And then with, if we had... Several thousand scanning electron microscopes and a budget of about a billion dollars. We could scan your brain. Let's say if you volunteered, and then we could get that up there. So you you would not survive the process. At least your meat body would not. That's why I wouldn't volunteer. Yeah. So let's. But let's say you had terminal cancer. You about right to die. You just had died, and we froze your brain right then. So we've got a chance there. Okay. So that's issue one. But again, if you're the right kind of person, it could be an, it could be a, okay. Issue two is that actually the brain is way more complex than uh, most of our estimates would have us think. And we keep finding new complexity. So, for instance, the models that uh, Henry Markham was funded by the EU and Darmad Moda, who's funded by uh, IBM, use, uh, don't include such things as we know neurons that don't actually have synapses communicate we know that electric fields actually carry information across the brain at long distances. Um, we, have, we know that individual um, dendrites of neurons, not just neurons, but individual dendrites of neurons, of which neurons can have up to hundreds, store information. We know that amoebae, which are smaller than neurons, don't even have a nucleus. Amoebae are smaller than neurons. They do things like they hunt. They remember where food is. They have behavior that is orders of magnitude more complex than our simulations of individual neurons. And so why do we think we can simulate neurons at the level of complexity that they are and get the behavior that we're going to get in the human brain? So I think we're underestimating the complexity. And I'll give you one more example. The simulations that our Medra Moda and, and Henry Markham are using um, would not be able to enjoy coffee or wine. Because they're not simulating at such a level that they actually have receptors for caffeine or for alcohol. So that's just a, a gut check for me. Uh, they wouldn't... <laughs> that, that implies probably a lot of other things. They wouldn't have... Like I am probably getting a little excited here. So there's probably a little bit more adrenaline coursing through my body. I'm probably uh, releasing uh, you know, maybe even some, some more dopamine switching through my body. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some neurohormones that I'm releasing. My mood is changing in the course of this conversation, and that's having a psychological impact on me. I would bet that even if we built a fully functioning upload based on their technology, it wouldn't have this
0: behavior. That kind of a feedback would be lacking. Yes,
1: in many cases. I see. So I, I think that we are still um, underestimating how complex a human brain is to model by at least several orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. That, in some ways, by
0: the way, that kind of... Uh was one of the things that uh, Dr. Stuart Hameroff said in his interview when I went to interview him in the University of Arizona. One of the things that I took away personally from that conversation was that it's a great insult to call a neuron a classical computer, as many AI or neuroscientists are trying to do. He says that's a gross oversimplification of all the processes and things that are happening in the neuron. It's not a simple binary zero and one thing. It's not a uh, uh, straightforward classical computer in his view.
1: Well, I don't, I, I think the, the evidence that there are quantum effects or quantum entanglement specifically in neurons is incredibly weak. And there's very good evidence that there's not likely to be just from thermal noise perspective, uh, Hammerhoff is talking about quantum entanglement and quantum consciousness, and I think that's also pretty woo-woo, actually. And we can just see hot systems, a lot of thermal noise, don't have quantum entanglement. It just doesn't survive. So it's unlikely that that's what's going on or that quantum mechanics is very important in, compu- in consciousness at all. But even if this is a classical computer, yeah. it's very complex. It's a, a A neuron is a machine that has billions of moving parts inside of it. And so you're not going to model it with a little simple spiking function. Uh, It has a lot more computing going on inside of it than the current systems.
0: Ramez, I want to move on our conversation a little bit more to the social, political, and other implications of the technologies that you discuss in your work and in your book. And I remember one of your characters in the first book, Nexus, says in one point, there's a war coming. And, and then we have the unfolding of the whole
1: novel. So let me ask you, is there a war coming? I don't think so. The, 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 in the book, one of the characters says there's a war coming. Uh, she's a Chinese scientist. Uh, she says there's a war coming not between the U.S. and China. This is 2040, so there's sort of a cold war between the U.S. and China. There's a war coming, she says, not between the U.S. and China, but between human and post-human. And this is because I portrayed it as... Uh, the uh, world is clamped down on these post human and trans human technologies. Um, I, for fiction and for effect, I wrote it that way. Uh, it's more fun. <laughs> and because I want to make a point that restricting technology and restricting people's freedoms isn't necessarily productive. And if people really want something, especially for something to improve their own lives, they're going to find a way to get it. Um, realistically, though, there's no war against cell phones. There's no war against LASIK. Uh, there's not even really a war against using modafinil to stay awake. There's a war on drugs. There is a war on drugs. And
0: Nexus is a drug in your book. Yes,
1: yes. Nexus is a drug. And that was an intentional choice as And well. it's a very smart drug. It's a very smart drug. But there's not much of a war on smart drugs in the U.S. Not yet, because maybe we don't have the smart drugs being as smart as we describe. You know, it's possible. but I, I, What I see in society in general is there is there's a, 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 an attitude in this country and in many countries that recreational drug use uh, is immoral and should be clamped down on, though even that is faltering in, in some ways. But the attitude towards enhancement technologies of various sorts is mostly, when can I get it? Um, there are some, some exceptions to that. The use in sports brings up fairness issues. Um, there's always hand-wringing about, oh, my gosh, what if the neighbor's kid can't afford uh, you know, this enhancement tech, and I can't, um, but mostly that's about access. Um, and so what I see mostly in enhancement technology um, in the West, and it's even more true in Asia, is uh, one will appear, there's some hand-wringing about it, um, but mostly, when people get access to a new technology and it, they see that it's safe, they see that it's cheap enough to afford, a few other people have used it, and so it's no longer weird, um, and the benefit is large enough, then they start to embrace it. There's an early adopter wave, etc., 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 until it becomes mainstream. And smartphones were, there's one in my pocket, probably one in yours, they were pretty weird. At first, um, Google Glass, I don't know that Glass will ever take off, actually, to be totally honest. I'm just not sure it's the right product. But Glass, I don't know, looks very, very dorky right now. But if they come up with a version that is uh, useful enough and cheap enough, uh, it will take off. And you don't see a war against Google Glass. Maybe there'll be a war against wearing Glass while driving. But. That's for other other
0: reasons. So Ms let me ask you about some of the other potential uh, implications beside besides conflict such as for example um, Big Brother as we have been witnessing it or alternatively technological unemployment. yeah how important of a role would they play in shaping our world in the next couple of decades because according to many people, we're only going to have better and more technology to create bigger and better Big product than what we already have, which is pretty amazing, as we have been discovering recently. And also, uh, more and more people will be uh, supposedly finding
1: themselves um, unemployed. I think those are two excellent, excellent questions. And they are two of the biggest issues on my mind in terms of how the, the near future will play out. And in fact, after Nexus, when I write my next book, one of the things I'm thinking about is is technological unemployment as a topic to deal with. Um, in terms of Big Brother, let's address that first. Like, we are certainly seeing that technology has made it uh, more possible than uh, ever to do things uh, that were once only dreamt of. It hasn't worked out quite the way that Orwell imagined in 1984, because he didn't imagine that communication technology would be used so much for peer-to-peer technology. So it's, uh, there's less effectiveness of technology as a propaganda tool now, uh, more effectiveness of it uh, for surveillance. Uh, but now, in the, in the 1960s, um, we had a rogue FBI in this country under J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover didn't like Martin Luther King. He did not like the civil rights movement. And so he directed his agents to bug Martin Luther King's home and his hotel rooms. Um, And then he gathered information about Martin Luther King. He found out King was having an affair. And then he sent anonymous letters to Martin Luther King saying, I'm going to destroy you. I know your secrets. You should give up on your campaign for civil rights. Uh, You should retire from public life or I'm going to release this information. And King just ignored those letters and went on with his life. So that's that's what somebody can do with bad, uh, in the bad scenarios when they have access to surveillance state. The situation now is ten thousand times worse because in Hoover's age he had to have FBI agents actually break into MLK's house when. King wasn't around, actually go into those hotel rooms to place physical bugs, and now it turns out, you know, any one of thousands of contractors at the NSA could just type in the right keywords, uh, choose from a list of uh, justifications for why it was okay for them to do this, from a keyword list, after getting training, instructing them on in how to choose the keywords properly so the court wouldn't really notice, and then just find out whatever they wanted to find out or what you were doing. So I actually don't think the NSA has done anything that sinister with the data yet. Um, And I think they probably won't for a long time because this has come to light. But that's the sort of thing we want to avoid. And again, now it's 10,000 times worse, or the abuses are 10,000 times more than they were when you had to physically plant bugs. So I think this is very, very concerning. David Brin talks about the transparent society and we should uh, let... We should just accept that uh, the government's going to spy on us and demand transparency in return. I don't think that's how it's going to play out because government agencies are extremely, extremely secretive. Um, And I don't think that we should give that much ground. I think that uh, rather we should push in the other direction and say, I demand uh, my privacy under my control. I will give it out. I will say... I will give away this information to this entity, this person, or this corporation if I get enough value back. But if I have not given you access to my information, you're not going to get it. And we should demand transparency from our governments on a wide variety of topics. There should be some secrets in, in some cases. The thing that gives me the most hope is that whistleblowing is asymmetric warfare. That's what gives me the most hope. It it's so hard to keep a secret. The thing that's wrong with most conspiracy th- theories is that it's really, really, really hard to keep secrets. There's and always a leak. There's always a leak. And so it just took Edward Snowden, just took one guy to make out with all of these secrets and bring this to the attention of the world. And now, the, in the U.S., at least, we have... Uh, public perception shifting. And we will see change on this. We will see action on this. We'll see how strong it is. We'll see uh, how big the reforms are. There will be some. So hopefully they're, they're big enough. Uh, we'll fight this fight again. It'll come up again in 10 years. It'll come up again in 20 years, in 30 years. Uh, in a certain sense, it's almost a, a little bit too bad that the revelations happen now. Because you might imagine that 10 years from now, there would have been a bigger scandal when we had caught the NSA uh, doing something worse with the data. So, for instance, uh, one of the political issues in the U.S. right now is uh, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline has been protested by environmental protesters. If we had uh, President McCain in office instead of President Obama, would the FBI have been using the NSA data to spy on Keystone XL protesters? Maybe. I mean, who knows, you know? But that's the sort of thing that uh, you can see already in the data. We see that the FBI was clamoring for access to this data. The DEA was getting access to this data. Actually, the FBI was in several cases as well. So we were on the verge, actually, of much more seepage of this data out of NSA to many more agencies. And had that happened a little bit more, actually, we would have had much, much bigger scandal, I think. And that probably would have pushed for even more reforms. Uh, even so, I think uh, Snowden's a hero, and I'm very glad this has happened. But we're going to have to keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting this fight again and again and again uh, till the end of time. And wh- what about uh, technological unemployment? Technological unemployment is a very real risk. Um, we don't really know yet if it's happening or going to happen. It sure looked like it was happening. Um, in the recession of 2008, we saw unemployment spiked tremendously for people who had uh, the least education. If you had uh, less than a high school degree, unemployment spiked to 16%. If you had a college degree or higher, it spiked to 6% or maybe 5 But now the people with the least education are seeing uh, unemployment rates drop the fastest. So it's all a little bit in doubt. Um, we've seen the fear before. Um, Ludd, who the Luddites are named after, Ned Ludd, he smashed the original mechanical looms because he thought they would bring technological unemployment. But in every stage in the past, the same machines that have destroyed jobs have come hand in hand with advances that have created new opportunities for people to have new work. I think the situation is actually best wrapped up in the title of a great book on this topic, which is The Race Between Education and Automation, which is, can you keep increasing the skills of humans so that they can fill the niches that best make use of the fact that there's now machinery and that are constantly created. Yes. So that's the real question is only 28% of Americans have college degrees. Right. So do you think that's really
0: a matter of education and there is hope that we can actually close that gap and, and perhaps then eliminate technolo- the, the, the very essence of technological unemployment?
1: Well, we will see what happens 100 years from now, but I think... Um, For the next uh, 20 or 30 years, the real risk is people who have uh, the least education or the least education in technical and managerial fields. And so the biggest question in my mind is, how do you take people whose jobs are being destroyed? Five million people in the U.S. drive cars for a living. Their jobs will be destroyed. How do you take those people and retrain them, help them get new skills, to find jobs that are valuable, that are more valuable than waiting tables. And that's something that our education system is not good at. And that's a really, really big question to me. So I don't think we have to have technological unemployment, but I don't think we're well geared today to adapt to the technological unemployment that will be created.
0: Mm -hmm. Ramez, you have a lot of very interesting things to say about a number of issues that we have touched upon today. For those of us who may be interested in following further with you and and finding more about you and your work. What's
1: the best place to do that? You can follow me on Twitter, at Ramez, R-A-M-E-Z, or on my website, rameznam.com. Mez, science fiction authors are
0: very well known for having incredible imaginations and being able to push the envelope to the next level. What is it that did that same thing for you recently? What is the one thing that totally blew your mind, that you totally didn't expect, and that was like, oh my God, kind of a revelation for you?
1: Well, I'll give you two things, Ashley, or just two pointers to people. Uh, One is the videos of Jason Silva, who does an amazing job taking uh, concepts of the singularity, uh, but also just current science and current philosophy, and just publishing them in a very riveting way. Uh, they're often very short. So I just say, if you want your mind blown on a regular basis, go watch this stuff. And then in books, uh, the work of Hanu Rianimi, who wrote The Quantum Thief, he really writes a post-singularity, if you will, post-uploading, post-space colonization uh, of the solar system set of books that are amazingly well done and super fun to read. And I, those are the best portrayal of a world radically changed by things like uploading that I've seen ever, I think.
0: Fantastic. So, Ms, we've been talking to you today for maybe almost an hour. What do you want for people to take away from our conversation with you today? What is the most important thing that you'd like them to take?
1: The future isn't set in stone. The future isn't created. The shape that it takes depends quite a lot on the choices that we make as individuals and as a society. The policies that we choose on things like the laws of what's legal and what's not legal, on things like the laws about how we help people retrain for new skills after their jobs have been destroyed, matter tremendously. And we can make a better future even than the one that we're likely to get automatically. The future is likely to be very, very excellent, but it can be even better if we make the right choices together. So that's the number one thing.
0: Ramesh Naam, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you.